All right, everyone. Today in the show, we have something a little bit different. Uh, in this episode, we're going to do a deep dive on Banshee Bungie and find out what happened to the company. So for anyone that doesn't know, Banshee Bungie was a huge product in the ski industry in the early 2010s. Basically, it was a 10 to 30 foot elastic band that served as a tow rope for urban skiing. So pretty much anchor it to one end, pull it back, and use it to pick up speed. Now it has its place in other sports, which we'll get to. Uh, but when we look at the ski community, this is really what it was being used for. And if you watch any urban edit from 2009 to 2013, chances are you'll see a Banshee Bungie being used. So the reason I wanted to do this episode is because this product was huge. It was literally the tow rope for urban. Uh, but in 2013, they just completely disappeared. And the only explanation was a rumor going around new schoolers that they got sued and went out of business. I've been interested in finding out what happened for a while now. Uh, so I spent the last week digging through the internet, getting the whole story so I could share it with you guys. At first, I was just going to share the details about how everything unraveled and, and what happened to them and put them out of business. But the more I looked in the company, I felt like the whole picture was important, so I decided to tell you guys the story from start to finish. So we'll try out this format, see if you guys like it. As always, if you like the show, be sure to subscribe and give us a rating. Uh, be sure to check out our Instagram, at 2 Pod. And yeah, that's all I have for now, so let's get into it and find out what happened to Banshee Bungie. So to understand the Banshee Bungie story, you really need to understand what riverboarding is. So riverboarding is a sport that originated in Idaho, and basically how it works is that you have a board, and in the early days it was usually just plywood, and you head into a river, attach a rope to a bridge, and then use that as support so you can surf the current of the river. Now there's a bunch of different definitions and names for this particular sport, but this is how the New York Times described it in 2006, so we'll roll with that. So now we meet Robert Greer. Greer grew up in Idaho, riverboarding as a kid, but as it goes, he grows up and ends up working for the Idaho State Tax Commission. Well, one day in 2004, Greer, who was 36 at the time, sees some kids riverboarding and decides he wants to get back into the sport and make a business out of it. His first stop for advice is the Boise State University Small Business Development Center. There, he meets Professor Kent Newpert, who turns Greer's idea into a class project for his graduate students. In this class is Kevin Vion, 28 at the time, who develops a business plan for Greer's riverboarding idea and ends up winning a business competition at the university. So, Vian and Greer team up, Newport signs on as an investor, and the business is born. Vian and Greer, still based out of Boise, form Big River Innovations Incorporated. With this corporation, they file an application for U.S. patent 702564-4B2 on May 24, 2004. The application lists Vian and Greer as the inventors and describe the product as follows. The waterboard sport system comprises a water skimming board device attached to one end of a resilient buoyant tether, the other end of which is secured to an anchor to provide a rider of the board with motive force from flowing water. The tether comprises a braid of mandrel dripped latex tubing for extreme elongation. A rider may maneuver the board to stretch the tether, charging it as a cocked spring. Release of the force stored in the stretched tether propels the board and its rider upstream at speeds much greater than that of the water flow alone, allowing the rider to fly at or above the water surface. Control features designed into the board enhance its maneuverability. Safety features are part of the system to ensure that the user may safely enjoy using it. So, what they invented is a new interpretation of Idaho riverboarding. Instead of surfing in one place or riding down the river, the riders using this bungee system to propel them up these glass surface rivers that they have in Idaho. On May 26th, 
2004, Big River Innovations files an application to trademark the name Banshee Riverboards and lists Vian as the CEO. After this, they continue to find new investors, tweak the product, up until 2006 where they head over to Munich for the ISPO Brand New Conference. So, for those that aren't familiar with ISPO Brand New, and I wasn't before researching this, they describe themselves as the world's largest platform for startups in the sports business. Since 2000, ISPO has been searching for and naming the most prominent newcomers in the industry with the help of an interdisciplinary jury of sports experts. So for example, GoPro was a finalist at the conference in 2005. With this, Banshee Bungie debuts at ISPO brand new 2006 and wins the summer hardware category. Later that year, Vienna and Greer appear in the New York Times, and by October 1st, 2006, they had sold about 300 boards, 200 in that year alone, uh, using 30 dealers based out of the West. At this point, the products range from a wooden board and bungee going for $300 to a fiberglass version going for around $500. After this, the timeline becomes temporarily unclear. Over the next two years, 2007-2008, there's not much evidence of what's going on behind the scenes. In 2007, there's a Wired article promoting riverboards, and in 2008, there's nothing. However, something was going on behind the scenes, because by early 2009, Vienna and Greer go their separate ways. Greer leaves Big River Innovations and continues on the riverboarding path by forming Even Surf Co., and Vienna goes on to form Banshee Bungie. Now, before we move forward with the timeline, I want to take a minute to dissect these two years. While there's no concrete conclusion about what led up to the 2009 split between Vienna and Greer, there are some different theories floating around online. One theory is presented by Italian entrepreneur Aldo Grappaldi. As we remember, Big River Innovations presented the Banshee Bungie at ISPO Brand New in 2006. Their product was a bungee attached to a board. Well, in 2007, Grappaldi and his company Brooks present their new patented invention, Tower, at ISPO Brand New. This product is a, quote, independent bungee with a handle not linked to any board, free to use with a device, snowboard, or skates, end quote. So, although they're amongst the finalists, their product does not win. One year later, in 2008, Big River Innovations returns to ISPO brand new with a new product called the Banshee Bungie. This product, like Tower, is an independent bungee with a handle, and the board is no longer part of the equation. Grappaldi claims that at this conference, he contests the Banshee Bungie on the grounds of patent infringement, and as a result, Banshee Bungie does not enter the roster of finalists. Grappaldi and his company Brooks go on to create Gravitis, which he claims is the one true bungee system. Unfortunately, I cannot find proof to back up Grappaldi's claims. While I was able to find a 2015 German patent he filed for a quote standalone bungee device with grip for board sports, I was unable to find the original Italian patent he was referring to. For anyone interested, the German patent is DE 202-015-000-274-U1. Grappaldi presents all this information on New Schoolers under the username Upbeat Nearby. Well, Greer, posting under the username Riverboarder, responds to Grappaldi's thread. Greer explains that, quote, I left Banshee in 2009 because they started using less powerful bungees that worked for snowboarders, skiers, and skimboarders, but weren't powerful enough for riverboarding. 
and in another comment claims that Grappaldi knows nothing about the history of sports bungees. Unfortunately, Greer's comment does not explain why Vianne started pushing for bungees that worked for snow sports rather than riverboarding. In 2009, after the release of Banshee Bungee, Vianne, when asked about why they made the change over from riverboards, states that, quote, Early on, it became clear that the bungee had a place in other board sports as well. We received a video from a pro skimboarder who used the bungee at the beach, and that motivated us to figure out a way to adapt it for different board sports. So what we have here is a game of he said, she said. Grappaldi claims that Big River Innovations copied his product, and Vian claims that they were inspired by a pro skimboarder. So we'll leave that open-ended for now and get back to the timeline. So this is where we get the era of the original Banshee Bungee. In a June 2009 interview with Shea Border, Vian talks about his new invention and says that the Banshee Bungee is a highly elastic cord that launches riders up to 30 miles per hour to open up all kinds of possibilities for snowboarders. It makes urban missions much easier, riders have enough speed to hit features on flat land, and the bungee frees them up from having to build or carry ramps. So when he's asked if it's just for snowboarders, he explains that snowboarders, skateboarders, and skimboarders have a lot of use for the bungee, and we also see it being used by urban skiers, dirt boarders, kiteboarders, and wake skaters. So really, this product went beyond the boundaries of snow sports, and was really being used by people all across the board. Over the next couple years, Vian was raising funds through investors, produce some different models, and just generally spread the word about the product. His LinkedIn says that they grew sales to over $2 million per year, distributed to 30 countries, and raised $3 million in equity capital, as well as $500,000 per year for inventory financing. This is also the time where we see Banshee Bungees explode on the ski scene. If you watch any urban edits from these years, you can almost guarantee that you'll see a b-roll shot of guys pulling the bungee back to the rider who's about to drop in. And this continues for about four years or so, and then they just vanish. Sight dead, nothing new on social media, sold out of retailers, nothing. The only thing coming out about them were comments on New Schooler saying that they got sued and went out of business. And it turns out, those comments were right, from what I can tell. So here's where we meet Karen Stewart. Karen is the mother of Casey Stewart, and also runs the Facebook page Ban the Banshee Bungee. I got in contact with Karen, and she was nice enough to share her story that started on March 17th, 2001. Okay, well, I'm Karen Stewart. I live in South Alabama, right outside of Mobile, and um, the Banshee Bungee almost killed my son. He's a very lucky young man to still be with us, and um, he was 19 at the time. Uh, went to Pensacola Beach with um, some college buddies. I had never heard of the Banshee Bungee. I had no idea it even existed. Um, but, you know, being young men, thinking they're invincible, they bought this contraption and um, they were smart enough, thank goodness, to go on an area of the beach that they were the only ones around because the particular one they got was a 20-foot uh, bungee cord for skimboards. You actually purchase a, a boating anchor and there's a clip on the end of the bungee cord that attaches to the anchor. The bungee is like a ski rope handle. And so the I breathe that anchor into the surf, pull back on the bungee, and then you know it propels you out into the water. So they had done this a couple of times, and um, if you don't know about the Gulf of Mexico. It is constantly changing. It is not a still body of water 
the sand is always moving underneath. So as a mom, had I ever seen this, I would have known right away, this is, this is not a good idea. I think any person with a bit of wisdom would have figured that out. Um, so they had pulled on it a couple of times and my son went to get on this. And as he pulled back, the anchor came up from the bottom of the water and was heading right toward him. He tried to turn. It struck him in the, um, I guess his foot was kind of up like he was trying to walk or run away. So it struck him in his foot and he completely disintegrated the whole bottom of his foot. He just had basically from the pad under his toes up, the rest of it was gone. And the anchor punctured his right below his spine. It missed his spine by less than an eighth of an inch. It crushed his tailbone. So it knocked him completely unconscious um, and he fell face down into the water. Uh, so his buddies got him and, um, you know, they were pretty good ways away from people. They didn't have a cell signal. So one of them had to run and flag some cars down to, um, I'm sorry, I, I still get a little emotional. It's, um, it was a very tough time. Uh, so they, they got an ambulance and took him to, um, a trauma center in the Pensacola area. And, um, when we got to the hospital and the, the Gulf also, it's, um, there's a lot of bacteria. So, uh, a wound like that in that part of the Gulf, um, is extremely dangerous, you know, because there's so many different bacteria that can attack. And so when we first got there, um, they had taken him in to try to, to clean it, to try to be sure that it didn't get any kind of infection. And we were just really lucky because there happened to be a phenomenal um, orthopedic surgeon that actually um, was in orthopedics for some of the FEC football teams. And he happened to be at the hospital when they brought my son in. So he stepped in to treat him. Um, they couldn't do surgery right away because there was nothing left to work with and they kind of just had to treat him for infection for several days well it's the swelling was so bad um it started going up his leg his skin split open there was they couldn't close it which made him at a higher risk for infection so he received blood he had to have platelet transfusions to try to built his immune system up to fight it. Um, about a week into it, they told us that um, there was nothing they could do, that they would have to amputate his leg. And it would most likely be all the way up to the hip. Now, this is a 19-year-old young man that left my house the day before just going to the beach with his friends, and now I've got this team of surgeons telling me my son's not going to ever walk again. So... Um, they sent us home to wait uh, to see um, if there was anything they could come up with. They'd never faced a, an injury like this. And so we, we came home. He was in a hospital bed in our home. We couldn't walk. Uh, we couldn't do anything. And they finally consulted with some doctors in Sweden and came up with a plan. Um, it was several weeks 
before they could do surgery because the swelling was so severe that if they did surgery, that would cause more swelling and his skin had already, it was beyond capacity. It had several rips in it. And so we were, it was like a losing battle that he needed surgery, but he couldn't have surgery. So um, we couldn't put him in, in a bath. I mean, it was just a terrible, horrible situation. So he finally got to the point where the swelling was down enough that they could um, try to rebuild. And they put uh, plates, screws, um, cadaver bone, and some coral. And that's the way they rebuilt his foot. Um, he didn't walk for 89 days. And I don't mean walking on crutches. I mean, he he was completely bedridden. He couldn't do anything. He lost all the muscle in his, um, in that leg. So we had to take all kinds of supplements and things because his muscles deteriorated just because of lack of use. So there were several other effects that came just from this injury that I think a lot of people didn't understand. And I think they thought it was just a little cut on his heel. Nobody understood the magnitude that the force that this thing had. And so after the surgery, um, I, I was so angry. I was just so angry that this could be sold without um, any kind of warning. And I don't know if you ever saw my news story, but um, I brought that up in that, that there was nothing saying, um, you know, to move the anchor or, or, you know, readjust or anything like that. And a normal youth mind doesn't think like that. And this was being sold in a toy store. A 10-year-old kid could have gone and bought this. There was no restrictions on it at all at that time. And there was a warning label on the bag, you know, that was like dangerous or something like that. But as far as like instructions, there was nothing saying, um, you know, have to, to readjust the anchor after every year or anything like that, that would, that would make somebody say, you know, we need to move it or, you know, just to keep it safe. So I started looking into it and um, I just, like I said, I just got so angry because I thought, you know, if it had hit him anywhere else, it would have taken his life. And we were so lucky that we still had him and that it didn't hit anybody else. And so I just started um, researching and I found um, two other people. Well, I had several people contact me that had had thankfully minor injuries, but I found two people that has had catastrophic injuries. Um, one was a young man in Florida and he'd actually hit him in the chest. He was life blighted. He did survive. Um, and the other person ironically got a picture. He was holding it for his young son and the anchor came out of the water and just by coincidence, his wife took a picture and it shows the anchor clearly in the air. It was right at his son's head level. It struck this man in his testicle and he lost his testicle. When I posted all that, people thought that was just hilarious. I see no humor in it. Um, I'm grateful that that man is alive and that it didn't hit his son because he wouldn't have his son. So after I, I found these other people and I knew that this was happening to other families, 
uh, I just couldn't let it go. I just had to to do something, and I just uh, my first thing was I went to um, Orange Beach, Alabama, which is the closest beach to us, and I presented everything that happened to my son to see if we could have that banned from public beaches because it it is poses such a risk for anybody in the area if that anchor comes up and there are other people anyone around you're at risk and they unanimously voted to to ban it from all alabama beaches and waterways up to i want to say it was a hundred miles um because you know there's several like little islands out and then i went to florida um i tried mississippi i just um you know, I just couldn't bear the thought of of just killing somebody, and I felt like that's where it was headed. So following the accident and her successful petition to ban the product from Alabama beaches, Karen's story started to spread throughout the news, which led people to her Ban the Banshee Bungee Facebook page, where they started to message her and harass her. So we, um, I got, got all of that done, and that's when I started getting messages and mail from the ski industry and at the time I had no idea this was used any other way than with a skimboard. I had no idea that what I had done had reached all all of the skiing community. I, I mean it was just I was blindsided by all of this. Um, so for a while I literally couldn't get on social media. I had to change my email. I even had a few letters that came in the mail, have no idea how people um, got my address, but just vicious, horrible attacks. And um, I don't, I, I just never understood how someone could read my story and the other stories of the people that I included. And to attack us the way that they did. Obviously, they've never walked into a trauma center and seen their child laying there. And I was going to do whatever I could do to never let another mother have to go through what we went through with our son. Now, fast forward 10 years later, he is perfectly fine. Praise God. Um, I've had other people still contacting me through the years that they wanted to know uh, who to contact for help because, you know, it had happened to their kid or, or their spouse or whatever. And I'm very proud that people have reached out to me because I feel like I accomplished something that not a lot of other people have accomplished. And I, I'm very, very happy to have done that my intention was never to hurt people that use it for skiing because you know I, i explained to you i don't know how you use it for skiing i don't know if there's an anchor involved if it is then i'm glad you can't use it because it's so dangerous but you know i didn't know it was going to travel this far when i did it but i still am not going to be apologetic for it um if I've saved one other person, then you know what? Glory to God. You, you didn't have to go through what we went through. So I asked Karen if she had ever had any contact with the company after the accident. And this is what she had to say. 
not directly, uh, only through um, attorneys and their insurance company. Um, never spoke to any person there directly, um, but they there was communication, just not with the, the founder. They completely um, said it was it was safe if used as directed, um, which they did. They they followed the instructions. You literally connected a um, clip to an anchor, and I can't think of the name of the anchor. I'm sorry, but it's got like three prongs on it, um, and I mean they're they're still prongs. We still have it. They bought it from the exact place they bought the bungee cord from. So it, it was the recommended anchor to use with it. They told you on the packaging um, what type of anchor, a anchor. And this anchor was, you know, like right next to the packaging of the Banshee Bungee. And it was the um, recommended one. And they so they bought the exact one. Um, but no, they, they would not take responsibility. They said it was user error, which I think in turn kind of fueled the anger from, um, you know, the skiers and the snowboarders because they're getting partial information. And um, I know there were several articles that went out without um, our knowledge that they, um, they would have a quote by me. I never talked to them, so, but they were you know, saying this was a quote, a quote from Karen Stewart, and I would never have spoken to these people. So um, I think they really tried to push it off on every person that was injured. It was it was their fault. They took no responsibility whatsoever. So we did we did go after the company that manufactured it because um, I. I wanted it off the market. I mean, here in Alabama, the way that they were marketing that was like a toy. Like I said, you could go to Toys R Us and purchase this product. Um, there, so yeah, I went after the. I wanted the company to stop producing it in the way that it was being produced, in the way being used by an anchor. That was my sole purpose: was to take the anchor away from it and so I think it just got so big once I started finding other people that this was happening to and you know they um that's what ended up happening was it just it shut them down it was the worst thing as a mom I've ever been through um and I do want to say something I I don't I don't want people to think that um you know I was I was kind of portrayed as as ignorant and I'm not um you know I would get comments like well well let's ban cars because cars have wrecks or let's ban bicycles because you might fall down and skin your knee I realize there's danger in everything I just wanted people to understand that this was an unnecessary danger don't don't deliberately tempt fate with an anchor you know so I didn't want to go after skiers I didn't try to to, you know, make it hard for all of them. It just snowballed and happened to be the entire corporation. That being said, I still cannot apologize for it because if it means closing down the whole thing to save one person, I will forever believe it was completely worth it.
So based on Karen's understanding of the situation, she told me that it was her lawsuit that caused Big River Innovations to declare bankruptcy. Well, I purchased the bankruptcy documents, and it seems like this is at least partially true. On July 8th, 2013, Big River Innovations filed for Chapter 7 bankruptcy. Chapter 7 is essentially a liquidation of assets, so the company, which is referred to as the debtor, sells its non-exempt property, and the proceeds are distributed to the creditors. In the bankruptcy court file that I have, there are 50 creditors listed for payouts totaling $652,375.05. Not entirely related to the story, but Step Productions was listed as one of the creditors being owed $2,000 for video production, so I thought that was kind of interesting. Now, there are other creditors with, quote, unknown payouts at the time of filing, which aren't included in the total calculation I just mentioned. While most of these are financial institutions, there are four creditors with unknown payouts that shine some light on the situation. These creditors are Terry Seegers, Dakota Orndorff, Bob Onorfrey, and Casey Stewart, Karen Stewart's son. Seegers is listed as a, quote, personal injury lawsuit, which was represented by attorney F. Dolan Kelly out of Tennessee, and I know absolutely nothing about that case. However, Orndorf and Onorfrey were both represented by the same lawyer as Stewart, attorney S. Russ Copeland. So I'm assuming that these were the two individuals that Karen was talking about earlier with the severe injuries. Their cases are listed as, quote, potential personal injury claims on the bankruptcy file. Now, Karen would not tell me how much, if anything, her family received from the lawsuit. And there's nothing I could find that specified what anyone else received. But on the website of the law firm that represented those three cases against Big River Innovations, they have $1,250,000 listed as a representative case for, quote, product liability. Now, this is just speculation, but that could possibly be in reference to the cases against the company. Again, just speculation. I don't know anything for certain. So that's really the end of the original Banshee Bungie. Uh, there was a Banshee Bungie 2.0, but I wasn't really able to find out a ton of information about them. What I do know is that the second rendition of Banshee Bungie was released under the LH Sports umbrella. LH Sports is an LLC that was registered by Luke Wang in California on May 12, 2014. Luke Wang appears to be an investor in the original company and decided to bring it back to life once they declared bankruptcy, from what I can tell. You can trace these years of change by looking at the history of the Banshee Bungie website. The site goes down by May 15, 2013, comes back online by October 16, 2014, which is after Wang started the LH Sports LLC. On March 12, 2015, the Banshee Bungie Facebook page is created, and by July 15, 2015, the site homepage reads, Banshee Bungie is back with an about section that explains, quote, after a brief hiatus, we are thrilled to offer customers our newest lineup of products. In early January 2016, a Banshee Bungie representative participates in an interview with New Schoolers, where they explain that, quote, we are essentially starting from square one. However, the Banshee Bungie name has been around a while, so it has been a nice initial boost. Mainly, we are focused on getting the name back out there and letting everyone know that we are indeed back making new product and will continue to do so. Unfortunately, this was short-lived. On February 17, 2016, Banshee Bungie posts for the last time on Facebook. On December 28, 2017, they post for the last time on Instagram. And by November 22, 2019, the site is officially offline. And that is what appears to be the end of Banshee Bungie. All right, that's it. Let us know how you liked the episode. This format was uh, mostly done out of necessity, since we couldn't get a response from any of the parties involved besides Karen. 
But if you all enjoyed it, maybe we can do it again in the future with a different story. But yeah, that's all for now. See you guys next week.